everyone and welcome back to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast. I cannot believe how fast we are flying through these episodes and I just wanted to say thank you again for all of your support on the podcast. It really means so much to me. If you are loving these episodes and you also have five minutes, I'd be so grateful if you wanted to drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and just leave any feedback in general. It always helps me to think about improving and also would love to hear ideas on any guests you'd like me to have on or topics you'd like me to cover. I'm super excited to introduce our theme and guest for this week and we are going to be talking about screen time with Dr. Eric Sigmund, a chartered psychologist and biologist with a PhD in the role of attention in autonomic nervous system self-regulation. Dr. Sigmund has also written many books, including The Body Wars and Remotely Controlled, How Television is Damaging Our Lives. Dr. Sigmund lectures on PHSC health education at schools and to parents, as well as medical schools, including UCL and to NHS doctors on preventing mental health conditions in children, managing screen time and preventing screen dependency, and body image and the pressures of physical appearance. I first had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Sigmund speak in our public health module at UCL, and I was absolutely fascinated by the impacts of screen time on our well-being, but also the impact it can have on our attitudes to food and body image. I have to apologise that the quality of this episode is a little bit all over the place and there are a few gaps, so please bear with me, but there was so much interesting stuff in here that I felt like it was really important to share. So, over to Dr. Sigmund. Before we get into it, I just want to introduce our sponsor for this week, Revive Active, and in particular, their Mastermind Supplement. Now at Isa Robinson Nutrition, we are all about a food-first approach and not getting bogged down in the nutritional minutiae. That said, on a plant-based diet, it can be much harder to obtain some of the nutrients necessary for brain and mental function. Some of these include omega-3 fatty acids, important for brain function, choline, and vitamin B12. Revive Active's Mastermind Supplement contains all of these, as well as the all-important vitamin D3 and several other nutrients to support brain function, cognitive function, and mental performance. The supplement comes in a powder sachet, which you can mix with water to help with absorption and is suitable for vegetarians. Mastermind can be purchased from their website, reviveactive.com, and they have kindly given listeners a code ISA10 to get a discount on your first purchase. Thank you so much again to Revive Active and your Mastermind Supplement for supporting this episode. Right, let's get to it. Hello, Dr. Sigmund, and welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Very well indeed. It is so, so exciting to, to have you here. And as we were just kind of talking about before we came on, uh, I had the absolute pleasure of listening to your lecture, calling the time on screen time when I was doing my master's at UCL and you lectured on the public health uh, side of things. Um, so I'm really excited for this conversation today around screen time and perhaps some of the impacts of that on our physical health, our mental health, and particularly perhaps our relationship to food and body image. But before we get into all of that, I was hoping that you might be able to introduce yourself and perhaps give the listeners a bit of an intro onto some of the really important work that you do. Well, uh, trying to encapsulate myself quickly is difficult, but in short, um, I 
do what's called, I suppose, health education. I am very interested in preventing diseases and preventing mental health problems, particularly in young people and children. And I tend to um, occasionally write medical articles or medical papers on the subjects that I might lecture on. And my main interests are uh, excessive um, recreational screen time for children and also screen misuse and overuse, late night use, and the effects on physical and mental health possibly. I have an interest in alcohol, particularly in Britain, and the importance of preventing future alcohol problems in a culture which adores alcohol. And also mental health. I know there's a huge focus on removing the stigma, raising awareness, but not much discussion about actual prevention of mental health problems to begin with. So some of the, those are some of the areas that I write things on and certainly areas that I do a lot of lecturing on. That's super interesting. And I'm wondering, you mentioned excessive discretionary screen time. And I'm just wondering what discretionary screen time is. And is that different to just screen time more generally? That's a very good question. In the first place, I need to tell people that despite what we hear in the media, we really should ignore most of that. Um, much of what the media does is to try to say screen time is good for us, screen time is bad for you, it's great for your children, um, or it's bad, and if your children don't have enough screen time, they'll never be rocket scientists or brain surgeons. The reality is it's not a fine science, and it's a very difficult thing to study because it's not a chemical, it's not a food. It's a very abstract behavior, and it's going to take many decades to really understand fully the possible effects of too much screen time. Let's start with some basic things. First of all, the main concerns regarding screen time are not the amount of screen time, for example, the children are spending at school, um, learning in school. There are important arguments about whether they learn as much from a screen, but that's not part of our discussion today. And of course, all of you listening now may be using screens for your work. There's not a great deal of concern about that. The real medical concerns occur after you're done working or after your children have finished their homework after school. How many hours of their spare time do they spend on non-homework screen time? And I'm not talking about Shakespeare. Um, I'm talking about computer gaming, television, Netflix, YouTube, social media, the things we used to call recreational screen time. I call it discretionary screen time. And the second question is, what time do we turn our devices off and actually go to sleep? Those are two things which medicine has a real interest in. Not moderate amounts of use, but excessive amounts of use and also late night use. Those are the main things people are concerned about. And Dr. Sigmund, I'm just really curious, you know, I'm based in, in the UK. I'm curious if there's any statistics on how much time in the UK we're spending on our screens. I'm more familiar with children's screen time. And when you're talking about recreational screen time, you're really talking about five and a half hours a day when you look at, I, think, I don't have the actual study in front of me, but I think between five and 15, it's about five and a half hours a day. The closer you get to 15, the higher the number of hours and uh, the closer you get to five years old, the lower number of hours, but it tends to go up most years. I know that in the United States right now, the average teenager is spending over seven hours a day on non-homework screen time. So 
these are very, very high amounts, and certainly adults um, listening right now are likely, if you're working, you're likely to be spending most of the day on screens, and when you get home in the evening, uh, when you add together how much time you spend on your smartphone, television, um, and all the other things, the numbers will be high. Just to put this in perspective, um, when you look at, for example, the official numbers given out by, the, by Ofcom, for example, and you look at the average 18-year-old, the average 18-year-old, by the time they reach 18, will have spent at least three full years of 24-hour days just on recreational screen time. It doesn't count homework or using screens for school. It's just fun time. As if they've been awake for three years nonstop just looking at you know, entertainment on screens. And by the time this generation reaches the age of 85, they will have spent 20 years of 24-hour days just on recreational screen time, not counting academic work or work when you're an adult or report writing. It's just fun time. It's about a quarter of their life. I, um, you know, just that is the, the statistic I think I heard in your lecture where I just sat for upright and I thought, wow, by 85, 20 years on, on screen time, it just, seems like such a vast amount. Yes, that's and what we're making a fuss about it. It is the amount. It's a hugely disproportionate amount of time. Yeah, and I guess what, what I was thinking is just going back to what you were saying at the beginning and some of your, your interests on kind of where the media gets involved and perhaps says, oh, screen time, maybe it's, it's not that bad because we might be able to be learning things. Or I think there are all these brain training uh, sort of games that you can play online or maybe VR where you're sort of on screens but perhaps doing some movement. And I guess I was curious from you know, your expert opinion, is this discretionary screen time always harmful? And is there sort of a debate about some of the pros and cons or you know, what do people like the World Health Organization think about this? I just wanted to jump on here to say that we go on to discuss the social determinants of health a bit further on in this episode. And this sense of children should have no screen time is not intended to shame or blame, but just provide you with a little bit of evidence and we will come on to cover some of the nuance. Well, a number of different answers to all those things. The World Health Organization has uh, issued uh, guidelines for all children throughout the world. This is for their parents. Children under the age of two should have no screen time. And that's because although major broadcast organizations and those who make DVDs and educational websites say that infants and toddlers benefit from screen time, their brains are not ready to benefit yet. And there may be problems in addition to that. So that's, that's what the World Health Organization says about the under twos. Um, and by the way, it's the same in the United States, US Department of Health, Australian Department of Health, New Zealand, and so it goes on. When you look at ages two to five, the World Health Organization has said um, um, absolute maximum of an hour a day, but quote, less is better. And then when you look at various countries, for example, Australia, up to the age of 18, between five and 18, they have various categories. I think five to 12, it's, it might be an hour, an hour and a half a day, and then you know, 12 to 18, uh, two hours a day. Um, the one thing I found amongst all those countries, health departments, no more than two hours a day of non-homework screen time is what they're saying. So those are the kind of um, things. Now, when you get into the arguments regarding how educational these things are, 
No one's arguing that you can't learn things from screens. And the industries that sell screen time and applications obviously want to intentionally confuse arguments about excessive recreational screen time with a different argument, which is to do with can children learn or can we as adults learn some things from screens. Doctors aren't worried about that. They're worried about the overuse. But if you do start to look at some of the careful studies looking at, is it the case, for example, that if you use brain training devices, they're, they're advantageous compared to other real life um, activities? The evidence is not good. It seems that you'll get better at the brain training thing you're working at on the screen, but that it doesn't generalize to outside life very well. Also, when you look at children learning from screens as opposed to teachers, younger children learning language uh, from just listening to their mother babble in the background on the telephone, as opposed to watching a video, again, real life seems to trump the virtual experiences on screens. So when you really go toe to toe and you look at screen methods of teaching as opposed to real face-to-face -face methods of teaching, the real life tends to trump. And the reason is that we are all biologically programmed to respond to human beings in the flesh first and foremost. Um, now, there may have been some other questions you were asking me, and there's so many of them I couldn't remember. <laughs> what, uh, uh, no, I, I think that that is, um, I think you hit the, the nail on the head there. And, and I think that's so interesting that all of these sort of brain training um, applications and, and games have come up but actually that they don't seem to translate into real life. And it's the biological real life kind of stimulus um, that like you were saying, listening to a phone conversation or perhaps being out and about and practicing those skills seems to be by far the best way to perhaps learn new things. Absolutely. And interestingly, we've done the experiment now that because of the lockdowns and the pandemic, most of my lecturing, both to adults and to children, has had to take place uh, online, um, live online and sometimes recorded online. And I'm now hearing again and again and again, without exception, that the children don't like it anymore. They want to see teachers face to face. They much prefer a live engagement with the person right in front of them. And this is a mass experiment. And I think what it's taught us is not that screens or remote learning are bad. They were a very good stop measure and fortunately we have that however they are not a real substitute for live face-to-face -face learning and teaching and, and real social interaction in the flesh wow I, I think that's so powerful and, and similarly in terms of my work and my clinical practice that all had to move online and whilst it's been a great stopgap um, it's hard to have the same experience as you might have in the room Absolutely, especially if you're doing clinical work, Isa, where really intimate, nuanced human relationships are, are, are really so important with the sensitive areas that you deal with, that a lot of that can go missing if you're having to do all of it online all the time. It's not the same thing as being there and watching people's body language as you're talking to them and then interpreting that body language. It's much better face-to-face -face if we can do that. Exactly. And, and just generally, even outside of clinical work for, for just anyone who's working in, in an office or in schools, just those social interactions and, and learning how to communicate those emotions or pick up on those things in, in general. Um, Dr. Sigmund, I'm really 
curious, you mentioned this overuse, that it's, it's the overuse of, of screens and discretionary screen time. And I'm curious because I know you have a background in, in kind of neuroscience about perhaps the impact of some of this discretionary screen time and the sheer volume of it on changes in the brain at all. Um, and particularly also something else that I know you talked about before that I found very interesting was screen dependency disorders. Right. Well, there is, there are some longitudinal studies now where, for example, they do um, brain scans of children between five and 18 years old now, and they give them an IQ test now. They follow them for three years and they look at either how much gaming they've been doing. Another study looked at how much discretionary internet use they were, we were involved with. Um, and then three years later, another brain scan and another IQ test. And what they're finding are, certainly when it comes to gaming, they were finding a trend that the more hours per day the young people and children were gaming, um, the more shrinkage they found in key brain areas which are linked with addiction. The other study looking at internet time, discretionary internet time, found that important brain areas that should have been growing and developing over those three years were, grew less than they should have in those children who were spending excessive amounts of time every week on um, discretionary internet time. So there are concerns, and we don't understand why this is the case, that very high levels of either gaming or discretionary recreational internet use um, may prevent areas from growing and may lead to actual shrinking in other areas when it comes to gaming. Now, going on to the second question, which is screen dependency disorders, the, the official one as of this last year is called gaming disorder. Studies are starting to find it would appear to be brain changes in addiction areas in those people with gaming disorder, or you can call it internet addiction. In short, what two things happen. The areas that give you a sense of reward when you do those addictive things don't respond as much. Those areas may shrink and may not be as responsive. So you need to do those things more and the other areas which should provide some control and should inhibit us from aiming too much those areas also um, tend to essentially shrink and are not as effective so they don't control our impulses and so they're finding this now with internet addiction or gaming disorder they also are looking at genetic predispositions. We now know that genetics play an enormous role in which one of us becomes addicted to certain sorts of things. So with screen time, they think that they've identified groups of genes, and in some cases, a single gene, which they think predisposes um, certain children to be more likely to be, become compulsive internet users. And until we know more, the general advice is, you know, keep it moderate. Yeah, and, and thank you so much for mentioning that, because I think in all discussions, particularly around mental health conditions, it's really important that we look at some of these kind of genetic predispositions and biological factors to really perhaps move away any blame or shame ascribed to kind of things like gaming use. And I know that, you know, an area that I work in is eating disorders, and we're always trying to think about shifting blame from the parents and thinking about a more complex picture that can be more helpful in moving people towards recovery. And I think the same goes for this. And I know something that I've been reading up on COVID is that it tends to be families from less privileged backgrounds, whereby children and teenagers have maybe had less support, perhaps less access to green spaces to play, and have 
maybe been spending a great deal more time on devices and screens. And I think it's just really important that we consider the social determinants of health in this conversation, uh, rather than blaming individuals, and also move away from thinking we can evoke behaviour change through simply telling people what to do, like just telling people to reduce their screen time without considering some of these structural barriers they may face. And it strikes me as quite similar in, in a way to the conversations around food and nutrition that we know that nu- that improving nutrition edu- education doesn't seem to be all that effective because it overlooks the social determinants of health. I completely agree with you. Um, I lecture uh, very often to parents um, on a number of different health topics. Uh, I l- may lecture to their children during the day at school and then the evenings I'll talk to parents about it. And w- for example, when it comes to things like alcohol or drugs or eating disorders, I have to go out of my way to say, you may feel guilty as a parent that your child has ended up drinking uh, or your child has ended up taking drugs um, or your child may have an eating disorder. And right away, you may start to blame yourself. And everybody wants a clear-cut singular answer and often there aren't any and often there's a genetic predisposition in combination with a wide variety of other things that have led your child to develop these things and it may have nothing at all to do with anything you have done or haven't done and it's very difficult for parents and it may be difficult for people listening now who may have one of those problems thinking is it something that I did and it may be that you have a genetic predisposition and certain life circumstances have put you under pressure and you are more likely than the next person to have this problem or that problem um, and as you say certainly your socioeconomic status and your um, position in life has a huge effect on um, health Uh, access to health things, uh, health choices, choices in time, and many other things like that. So there isn't a singular answer as to why do some of us develop this problem and others develop that problem. It's a complex interaction, but genes are often the elephants in the room that have been ignored. The the genetic predispositions there in the environment can trigger it. Mm, Yeah, thank you so much for that. And I think with, with that genetic part being ignored, I think therein lies... Uh, quite a big part of some of that biological uh, understanding, which again, I think can can move us away from blame and sort of personal responsibility as well. So Dr. Sigmund, I think we've really set a really good kind of foundation here. We've been talking about discretionary screen time. We've been talking about how perhaps by the time an 18 year old is 85 today, they would have spent 20 years of their life on a screen. We're starting to think about some of the changes in the brain and genetic underpinnings, which may predispose somebody to um, a screen dependency disorder or gaming addiction. I'd really love if it's all right with you to come on to perhaps talking about the impact of screens on things like food and particularly body image. And I know that you've actually written a book called The Body Wars, Why Body Dissatisfaction is at epidemic proportions and how we can fight back. And I know that, you know, something that I see in clinic all the time is, is individuals really struggling with body image and this perpetuation of a thin ideal. And I was just really curious to hear about this from, from your perspectives and some of the research you've done and, and particularly around your book. Hi, just jumping in to say that we're about to discuss men and women in binary terms, but I wanted to jump in here to say that these experiences and thoughts exist on a spectrum. 
Well, I started to think about this, uh, but one of the main things I noticed was how I thought girls and women respond so very differently to issues of body. Now, this is starting to happen in boys and men. I also travel around the world. I've been to many, many different countries and places, and I do volunteer teaching, and I have a chance to meet children. I have a chance to meet doctors, nurses, their parents, and really compare cultures. And I'll tell you what I also hear is that when, when I go to countries where screens are just arriving, for, for example, I was in Bhutan in the Himalayas, the last country in the world to ever have television. And when television arrives, the dieting starts. And this is a pattern I've seen again and again and again. And I think what it does show us is that although things like eating disorders may very well have a genetic predisposition and there are many other causes, culture and media are one of those drivers. They are an environmental factor. So I just wanted to jump in again to give a little bit of context because we're about to discuss social comparison theory and how this relates to social media and media images. And kind of evolutionary kind of terms, humans tend to compare themselves to those in our communities or those around us. And interestingly, research shows that when we're comparing ourselves to others, we tend to compare up. So we tend to compare ourselves to people that we feel like are better than us or have more than us or look better than us or are doing better than us. And that's obviously going to not leave us feeling so good. So that's kind of one of the first things to keep in mind. But the other thing that's really important to perhaps consider is that as the media has become a bigger part of life and as we have more access or a window literally into other people's lives, the pool of people that we can compare ourselves to and the amount of people that we might compare ourselves up to has just got bigger and bigger. And we're now comparing ourselves to people who are probably a lot less similar than us than perhaps if we were just comparing ourselves to those around us in our real lives, in our communities. Um, so I hope that that gives a bit of context and helps to make sense in this discussion. And it was an interesting neurology study. And what they did was to take um, two so-called ordinary women and they, um, they monitored their brain activity and they showed um, the women images on a screen, internet images, and one of them was the, the sitting room of, of a woman, and they then measured the brain response and how much anxiety the women felt. There wasn't much of a reaction. Women sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, yes, lovely sitting room. Then they showed them their model in a bikini, and the areas of the brain involved with threat, alarm, self-loathing were really, really active, and the areas of the brain which deal with reason and rational thought, which would have said, hold on, that's a media manipulated image, it's been photoshopped and all that, don't be threatened by it. Those sensible areas were shut down, they, started, they were underactive. And so women were left just feeling threatened uh, and feeling inadequate without actually knowing it. And these were women who had no body image problems as far as the scientists could tell. So the thought is that females, probably for evolutionary reasons, are particularly susceptible to these media comparisons all day, every day on smartphones and tablets and televisions and so on. And why I believe that we do need to think about how much we are exposed to these idealized, unrealistic images, and this is really pertinent for our daughters and our sons. More recently, most females are now using the social comparison process to compare themselves with people on screens. 
And it seems to have hijacked this social comparison process and given females in our societies a false point of comparison. It's called the contrast effect. How do I contrast compared to other people I see? Chris, you mentioned um, that body dissatisfaction tends to be higher in females. It, has, it does seem to have increased in men, and I think they're saying that 25% of eating disorder sufferers are male. I'm curious in, in your um, kind of, from what you've read in terms of research or, or your opinion, does it seem to be an evolutionary um, mechanism that underpins that in terms of females? Or is there some kind of socio-cultural conditioning in terms of gender roles and sort of women perhaps being more exposed to the diet industry from from much earlier on i think it's both of those things i think there is an evolutionary basis um and then of course the the as you say the dieting industry and the media then of course hijacks that um so i do think that but i think uh, when you look at males and females on the whole the kind of problems we find with with males are that for example the the well-known problem called they're often referring it to as muscle dysmorphia but what we're picking up on is that computer games with hypermuscular characters and music videos are a couple of the really big drivers for young guys. Mm, yeah, gosh, that's so interesting. And, and I'm also thinking about um, programs such as, as Love Island, where, um, you know, there's such there, there's a one um, kind of male figure that all of those individuals embody. And I think it's really interesting what you say about um, the differences between these uh, body ideals, it's kind of how I like to think about them between men and women. And I'm also curious about how they seem to be shifting a lot um, so that the, the goalpost keeps changing and um, people are, are constantly striving to, to look a certain way. And, and perhaps one of the biggest drivers of what that look is, is, is driven by mainstream media um, the images that we are bombarded with on things like Instagram. And I certainly feel like in my experience, when I was growing up, 16, 17, 18, it was that waif thin look. And it seems to have changed to something that's much more athletic, much more toned, much more muscular. And initially, I think there's that, perhaps that thought that, oh, this is so much better to be striving for an, an athletic sort of look. But what I kind of have, have learned from stay, taking a step back from this is that it, it doesn't matter what the look is, that if there is this one dominant way to look that seems to be on a pedestal compared to somebody else, that that is creating the sort of fertile ground for eating disorders, body dysmorphia, body dissatisfaction to develop and thrive. I don't know what your kind of thoughts are on that. Well, I'll tell you, Issa, you couldn't have put it, I couldn't have put it as well as you did. Absolutely, I agree with everything you've said. Just a quick disclaimer that when we're talking about makeovers here, we're just talking about applying makeup if that is something which you wanted to do as a personal choice. Interestingly, before I started to speak to you today, I was chatting with my daughter about this and she said exactly what you did. And sneakily, what the media has done is, as you say, replace slender with um, the term fit and toned. But it's still an imposition. And this kind of imposition isn't good. I think we have to accept the fact that this is not like a makeover. It's not like 
the Rachel hairstyle of the 1990s, um, then it changes to something else. Hairstyles are one thing, makeovers are one thing. When you start changing your body shape to conform to media ideals, it's, it's basically a medical intervention. And a lot of doctors are concerned that this is a, a, a medical intervention on your body. And it's very significant and very serious. And we shouldn't be changing our body shape to suit the fashion of the times. It, it's not the way that you treat our bodies. Yeah, and I might even say perhaps it's, it's not even a medical intervention. It's almost abusive and harmful to be, you know, when we think about what determines our body weight and shape, you know, so, so, so many factors, a lot of which are outside of our control. We think about that genetic disposition. Uh, we think about all of those factors from even things like adverse childhood experiences. Yes. Um, and uh, I think what I certainly see from, from this screen time, from social media, from uh, TV and, and and all of this is is how much we have become dissatisfied with our own bodies and and particularly um, overlook the amazing functions of our bodies and how we can achieve optimal well-being, good health outside of a certain look. Yeah, and I think if, if you look at what's happened with social media, uh, irrespective of what we think of social media, it's become more and more and more pictorial, more visual. And that's where a lot of the comparisons are happening and a lot of the dissatisfaction is taking place. So yes, that I think that's an important thing. Mm, yeah, and I think um, I always like to, to talk it through with, with clients and, and one of the things we really look at in terms of their experience is how media culture and diet culture, they really sell us this. If we just follow this plan, if we just do the right things that we're being told, then we can achieve this ideal look and we can be happy and healthy and successful. And certainly from hearing uh, about others' experiences of this, uh, it, it feels like a big lie. And actually the ways in which we can really take care of ourselves and embody unique, authentic health um, and kind of reach the sense of a rich and meaningful life often sits outside of some kind of physical look. Absolutely right. Um, it's a far more of a spiritual thing. And, you know, what you say is correct, that ultimately, if you and I were happy with our bodies, somebody would not make any money. It's really bad for business if we're happy with the way we look. Um, and that's a terrible, I suppose, a terrible um, dynamic to think about, but that's the truth. And if you think about it, the diet industry, even during recessions, is one of the most successful failed industries in history. Um, that it does well all the time. And if you're successful at, as you already know better than I do, Isa, that all the, fa you know, the famous diet companies will all get all of your listeners to lose weight. But two years down the road, um, they gain the weight back. And that's good for business because what they say is that, well, I know you with the best will in the world, you tried to stick to it, but basically you failed. So you got to come back to us again. And it's not good for your self-esteem. Um, but it's very good for business and it keeps the, you know, the revolving door in and out and in and out and in and out. And I think that your approach to this breaks all that because you rightly said really happiness lies outside of thinking about your body and having a healthy body is a longer term thing about your general lifestyle, not a temporary intervention. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And 
I know that it really sets outside the scope of, of our discussion today, but something that I feel really strongly about is dismantling some of this weight stigma and the um, systems of oppression, particularly against individuals in, in larger bodies. And so when we're thinking about trying to find some sense of happiness or peace in, in a body which may feel like a fraught space or a space of trauma, um, you know, that, that's one thing. But if we go out into the culture and we go out to our doctor or our GP and they're saying lose weight or we brush up against these pictures in the media, um, it is really, really challenging work. And I just always think it's really important to acknowledge that um, as part of, of this discussion. Yeah, it has to be put in context. And I think sticking just narrowly to um, body image issues and so on without taking in the very big picture, it doesn't really do it a, a, a full justice. So I think it's good that we did mention that. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sigmund, thank you so, so much for, for this discussion. I know um, we are nearly done with, with our time and I could honestly speak to you for, for hours and uh, days. But I am curious if you have any top tips, perhaps, for anyone listening who is thinking about wanting to reduce their screen time, who is looking after kids or teenagers, um, wanting to reduce their screen time. What kind of any advice that you might have? Uh, well, a couple of things. First of all, if any of you are listening to this um, during a period of, of semi-lockdown or during a pandemic, I think we have to accept the fact these are not normal times and both we and our children will have more screen time. That's going to be the way it is for a whole variety of reasons. But thinking about normal life, uh, a couple of things. First of all, all parents have got to have some sort of screen time rules for their children. And you'll all have different rules. Different families have different rules about many things. But we know that if you don't have some sort of boundaries and rules, your kids will have more screen time. And so do have some uh, idea about how many hours a day of recreational screen time during the school week as opposed to weekends and very importantly what time of night those devices will be switched off and better yet not in the bedroom at all uh, those of you that haven't put screens or allowed them in your kids bedrooms I'd say don't do it you'll make a rod for your own back I would also suggest that you get some sort of internet control so that, for example, you as an adult can use the internet 24 hours a day if you want, but each one of your children will have theirs switched off automatically at a certain time of night. Those things are easily available nowadays. I think one of the well-known ones is called Questodio, I think, but there are many others as well. Regarding us as adults, uh, I think a couple of things. We do need to start thinking about our recreational screen time, that's non-work screen time, as a form of consumption, both for us and our children. So we do need to generally start to think about amounts of recreational screen time and to keep those moderate. Ideally, two hours a day max, if possible, of recreational screen time would be really good. Um, our kids are getting sometimes almost three times that amount on average nowadays. And certainly adults are probably getting two to three times that amount as well. So think about that as, as an amount. Try to think about what you're gonna watch in the evening. If you wanna watch a film or television, think, I want to watch that program or I want to watch that film. Don't just let it wash over you mindlessly so you're watching one hour after the other. And I think that all of us have got to have a digital sunset. 
there's got to be a time of night where we actually draw a line under the day um, and are not connected anymore. And I really don't think that we, any of us, unless you're a brain surgeon on call, any of us should be using a smartphone as an alarm clock. It's a very really a very tempting thing. It's like having a window open to the outside world just a few inches away from your head. And you know, even if it's on standby or off, that there may be something interesting on there. Don't do it. Take that smartphone, put it out of your bedroom and charge it somewhere else and don't have a telly in your bedroom either. Those are some of the basic things that I would recommend. Thank you so much. I, I love the idea of, of a digital sunset and actually I am guilty of using my phone as an alarm clock and I think uh, after I listen to this that's a change that I'm going to try and implement for the new year and, and maybe ask for an alarm clock as a, a stocking filler. I think that's quite a good one in, in the spirit of, of reducing some of, some of this screen time. Dr. Sigmund, it honestly has been uh, such a privilege and a pleasure, and I really can't thank you enough for giving up some of your time today to share your expertise on such such an important subject, particularly at these times during, during the global pandemic. Um, I'm just wondering if you might like to let people know where they can find you if they want to read up on more information, or perhaps they'd like to have you to speak at, at a school or, or anything like that. Uh, I'm trying to think. I, I have a website, um, which I don't do much to very often, but there's plenty of stuff to read on there. Um, it is www.aricsigman.com. And the spelling of that is A for Alpha, R-I-C-S-I-G-M-A-N.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn as well. And, and, and it'll have links to my papers and that sort of thing. Fantastic. And I can add those to the show notes as well with also some of the links to your brilliant books that uh, go into much more detail on some of the areas that we've covered today. Great. Well, listen, it's been a real pleasure. I have, I'd say to you that I am, I, I'm, I'm actually dying to talk for hours more to you on this. You've got me going now. And you can see I have a real passion and an anger when I think people are being taken advantage of when it comes to their health and mental health. So you, you've got me going. Well, thank you so much. And uh, definitely it felt, felt like a, a good energy, even in this virtual space between us. So um, thanks again. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Same. You take it easy. So that was Dr. Sigmund on calling time on screen time. And I have to say that after this episode, I vowed to buy myself a proper alarm clock and it's still on my to-do list. So as soon as I record this, I am going to get on Amazon. I also thought I would invite you all to perhaps set an intention after this episode with regard to screen time. That could be setting a boundary on screen time before bed or doing a social media detox of the accounts that don't help you to feel your best. If you wanted to share anything you're up to, I would love to hear from you. So please don't hesitate to email me at isa at isarobinsonnutrition.co.uk and perhaps I will share some of those on the next episode. Right, that's all from me. I will be back next week with another juicy episode and I will look forward to speaking then. Bye.